When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Greetings and salutations and welcome to a new episode of Two Book Nerds Talking. I'm Diana Young and I'm here with my partner in crime, the lovely and brilliant Hani Ahmad. How's your day going so far, Hani? Uh, it's all right. It's all right? Yes. I was hoping that you would say something like, the day is tranquil in the violet silence of the afternoon light, <laughs> with sloping leafy hills and children with faces smeared with laughter. You know, something inspired by <laughs> the author of the book that we're doing today. Well, I, I saw a butterfly on the way here. Well, there you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's part of it, yeah. So today we're exploring On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, which is the debut novel from Asian-American writer Ocean Vuong. He has quite the claim to fame as his collection of poetry called Night Sky with Exit Wounds won not only the Ford Prize but also the Whiting and the Tom Gunn Awards as well as the highly prestigious T.S. Eliot Prize. Ocean Vuong was born in Saigon, Vietnam and he now lives in Northampton, Massachusetts where he serves as an assistant professor in the MFA program for poets and writers at UMass Amherst. Do you know how he got his name Ocean? I've heard the story, but I'm sure our listeners would like to know. According to the highly reliable Wikipedia, <laughs> his mother is unable to pronounce the word beach. Right. She says bitch instead of beach. Okay. A customer of hers, because um, his mother worked in a nail salon, suggested that she substituted it with ocean. And once she discovered that it means a body of water connecting United States and Vietnam, she renamed him Ocean. Oh, wow. Because that's kind of like that connection, which mm-hmm. I thought, wow, even his name has such a romantic um, yeah. origins. With a name like that, you know, I think it's almost like he's fated to become the person that he is. So um, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous just came out in July. It's really highly anticipated and um, rightly so, actually. Um, I did not know what I would to expect going to it because I don't really read you know, a lot of the news around books before I read them. Right, so um, I think it was on pretty much everybody's summer book list. Yes, yeah, yes. highly, highly. That's probably the only thing I knew about it. But yeah, I mean, like I haven't read his poems before, but I did after I read the book because you know the book emphasizes to us just how poetic his writing is. Maybe a little bit of um, the story, the plot. Maybe would you like to share what you thought of, of the book? Okay, the book is roughly divided into three parts. And I felt that it mirrored, I guess, a life. And the interesting thing about this book is that you feel that he's writing a memoir, but it's not a memoir. Right. So it's what people call autofiction to a certain extent, mm-hmm. where he takes from his life, but then he fictionalizes it. Mm-hmm. And half the time, you don't know what's real, what's not. Yeah. But to be honest, this book kind of grabbed me by the throat. So when I read it, I just could not really put it down. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so... The first part of the book is I feel about birth because it's his birth. Uh, the main protagonist, whose name is Little Dog, his birth in this rice paddy field, his mother's story, and even like a rebirth because then they immigrated to America mm-hmm. and their life there. Mm-hmm. And then you have part two, which I uh, feel is like an awakening. So it's, an, uh, it's him growing up, his sexuality, his coming of age, he's coming out to his mother. Mm-hmm. 
And I remember it, um, I read somewhere that he said he wanted parts of this. Um, he wanted the awkwardness of feelings in this particular section to be as large as weather. So he uses right. a lot of climates in his, um, mm-hmm. in his description. Mm-hmm. So for instance, you will meet Trevor, which is the first boy that he falls in love with. And he says that his grey irises were smattered with bits of brown and amber. So that looking at them, you can almost see right behind you something burning under an overcast sky. Mm-hmm. So, oh my God, this book is punctuated with this real beautiful imagery. You can tell he's a poet. Right. Right? Yeah. Okay, so part three is death. So part three deals with a lot of death. Also, not so much just physically, but also um, sexually. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like the French call sex, like uh, la petite mort, the little, little death. death. Yeah. <laughs> and the way that he writes, there's some really visceral sex um, in this. And it does feel a little bit like a little death, you know, when you're reading it. Mm-hmm. So in, in a way, that's what you're getting. So you're getting the story of this um, boy's life. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing him in different parts of his life and also different parts of his story with his mother. Right. And there's also a lot of um, a thread of, you know, like finding his identity in it and also like, you know, the exploration of language, which I found really, really fascinating. The format of the book is actually in the form of a epistolary novel, which is um, a, a letter he's writing to his illiterate mother. Exactly. It's interesting because he says that the letter is to someone who will never read it. And and it's it's... It's really honest. It's looking back at his own past and, you know, like the influences from his childhood that made him who he is. And, you know, his exploration of his identity and, through, you know, through his first love um, and also his mother's identity as well. Yes. Right? Yeah. Let me begin again. Dear Ma, I'm writing to reach you. Even if each word I put down is one word further from where you are. I am writing to go back to the time, at the rest stop in Virginia, when you stared, horror-struck at the taxidermy buck, hung over the soda machine by the restrooms, its antlers shadowing your face. In the car, you kept shaking your head. I don't understand why they would do that. Can't they see it's a corpse? A corpse should go away, not get stuck forever like that. I think now of that buck, how you stared into its black, glassy eyes and saw your reflection, your whole body warped in that lifeless mirror. How it was not the grotesque mounting of a decapitated animal that shook you, but that the taxidermy embodied a death that won't finish. A death that keeps dying as we walk past it to relieve ourselves. I am writing because they told me to never start a sentence with because. But I wasn't trying to make a sentence. I was trying to break free. Because freedom, I am told, is nothing but the distance between the hunter and its prey. Even though it's like written as a letter, mm-hmm. but it feels very confessional as well. So you get yeah. really up close, and oh, very yeah. intimate with their relationship very. as mother and son. Um, yeah. And also his relationship with his grandmother because he, mm-hmm. was, he was a boy that was raised by women. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm. I suppose in a way, if you're writing a letter to your mother and it's very much you know a confessional kind of letter, 
There's a lot in it that touches on his dark past. He went through a lot. His grandmother and his mother, they have a lot of experiences from the Vietnam War, right? And all of that has scarred them for life. And their scarring, you know, has an imprint on him. So he, when he's exploring all that, it must hurt his mother. So in a way, knowing that she can't read it, it allows him to be more honest about it. Mm, yeah. It feels like women, especially those that... I mean, his mother was obviously a product of an American GI affair. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, she gets left behind and she couldn't find him. And then his father as well, which I'm pretty much is um, Vietnamese, I think, mm-hmm. was also abusive and he he, he wasn't around. Right, he um, left them. Mm-hmm. And, and it feels like um, there's just very little agency for women of a certain era yeah. in Vietnam. Yeah. Storytelling was the only way that they can control mm-hmm. what is said. Right. So I was reading an interview with him where he says that when he was very small, his grandmother would actually tell stories. Mm-hmm. And then she was like going, oh, that kind of happened before the napalm bomb. Mm-hmm. You know, like things were punctuated by all these bits of war, right? And right. he remember as a small child, he would go like, what's napalm? It kind of comes into the story. And then his grandmother would just glaze it over and then just don't talk about it because right. they don't really talk about what actually happened in a way they kind of want to move on. Mm-hmm. But he felt that that was the only way they can control their narratives because right. of the fact that they had such little agency when it came to, you know, being refugees and being deserted by the men that they were counting on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that that is what they brought over to America. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a lot of history there, personal history intertwined with the history between Vietnam and America. And of course, it is central to the narrative is an immigration story and what it's like to grow up in a place and be... He wasn't only a foreigner. He couldn't speak English when he arrived in the US at the age of two. And he, mother and his grandmother, they probably speak very rudimentary English. And then um, he's, he talks about the language. And that really gets me. Like he, he talks about how when he started learning English and, and he started, you know, like reading literature and getting a better grasp on language because he wanted to express himself. There was a distance between him and his mother because of that gap of language, right? Mm. And, oh yeah, it's the same with Little Dog as well, right? Yeah. Because he had to translate things for his mother. Mm-hmm. He had to order her Victoria's Secret bras <laughs> because she was unable to talk English. And even when you talk about language, right? Mm-hmm. When his mother was trying on clothes, she would ask him, is this dress fireproof? Where did this, does that come from? His grandmother was like, you get out of bed, you know, like the helicopters are coming. The sort of language that they use is the language of people that have been at war. How many times have we talked on the phone with those we love? And we say, well, how are you? How are you doing? Oh, fine, fine, good. How's the weather? What happens when we want to say the thing we need to say to those we love most and we can't do it? I had written an essay, um, and which starts the first chapter of the book. The essay um, is a letter to uh, a mother, my mother. Um, my mother is illiterate. It was an attempt to see um, if language can really be a bridge as it is often aspired to be. And, and, and ultimately, that um, it could fail. Right? And, it, and that was exhilarating to me, to be a writer endeavoring in uh, a work, an essay, that should fail from the get-go, writing a letter in English to an illiterate mother. It's an impossibility. And ultimately, it's about uh, 
uh, how far away we are as a country and as individuals, how sometimes it could take a whole lifetime to get an inch closer, but even that inch could be enough, could be so large, so powerful, um, that it, it could seem like an achievement, a victory uh, for, for, for two people, you know, a mother and a son uh, struggling side by side and yet not really knowing um, how each other feel. Little dog grew up in this world in which he was like pretty much marginalized across, uh, in, like in class, in race, sexuality. He grew up in a really violent household as well because you know both his mother and his grandmother, they had PTSD from all the trauma what they encountered during the Vietnam War, and that translated into how they treated him. When that was that theme came out in in the story, it got really uncomfortable for me because that's what a lot of us in Malaysia actually experience with our parents, right? Growing up, we sort of feel like it's okay to be smacked by, you know, to get the cane once in a while from your parents because it was normal. But nowadays we know it's not normal, right? Mm. No, but, I mean, it's interesting that you said that he was bullied because he was yellow. I guess he keeps using the word yellow, he's Vietnamese, right? Yeah. While his mother um, is mixed and she got bullied when she was in Vietnam because she was too white. Mm-hmm. It's not just... A problem in America. Mm-hmm. It's not just a racial problem yeah. in America. There's also that. No, um, I'm, the I mean, same sort of like. Um, yeah, I think I, I really like what he describes as this inheritance of trauma, basically. So basically, because they had gone through these things, it's sort of like they had the only way for them to process it was to you know act out. You know, and he talks a lot about how, like, um, when he was a child, his mother would be like, you know, like suddenly violent to him and stuff like that. And yeah, and, and I, he would say something about the fact that now he can live life because he kind of understands that life is violent. Yeah, yeah you know, I, 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 I think, think that was a really good um line. In yeah, the book. I, I liked what he was saying because he he did say um I think Ocean in one of the interviews I that I I listened to, he did say that you know he wanted to grow from that. And that's what this novel helped him do, right? It helped him to to realize that, you know, there's all these threads of history running through us, but we don't have to let it control who we become. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's this line that says, sometimes being offered tenderness feels like the very proof that you've been ruined. Hmm. So when tenderness happens, it feels weird. It mm. feels odd. Mm-hmm. And you feel even worse off because the language that you understand is the language of violence. Mm. And there was that line, right? That that laughter is part of the word slaughter. Yeah. You know that? So he uses language in that way. And also the language of learning a new language, right? I think what he said was you yeah. can't write slaughter without the word laughter in it. Something like that, yeah, right? Yeah, mm. yeah. What, one quote about that that really got me is um, where he said, All this time, I told myself we were born from war. But I was wrong, Ma. We were born from beauty. Let no one mistake us for the fruit of violence. But rather, that violence, having passed through the fruit, failed to spoil it. And, man, I tell you, lines like that, (laughs) I mean, it sends shivers down down your spine. It really gets to the heart of it. We've all gone through these things. I mean, families would have some history that, you know, that dark history that they don't like to talk about. But do you allow that to color who you become? 
Do you allow that to to you know decide who you are? So much of the book is about his identity, right? Whether or not he's um, you know, when when he learns English, does he lose his mother tongue, right? And what what happens when you come out? You choose to to love men rather than love than love women, you know that kind of thing. So all that ties into yeah. I mean, this line: "Don't draw attention to yourself. You're、mm-hmm. already Vietnamese." <laughs> you know, so I remembered um the part of the book that I thought was. So beautifully put is that he spent most of his life trying to be invisible, right? Because、mm-hmm. to be seen、mm-hmm. means to be bullied, yeah,、uh, means to be smacked around, means、yeah. that people are taking notice of you. So you cannot just go away unnoticed、mm-hmm. and not suffer the consequences, right, of being who he is, right? And then him saying that when the first time he felt somebody looked at him and he thought he was beautiful, you know, when he was with Trevor. And suddenly having that realization that you spend all your life trying to be invisible, but suddenly to have somebody see you, right?、Mm-hmm. I thought that was really quite、um, such、yeah. an amazing sort of like way that he puts it together. And he、I'm, and he does he does he talks about how basically like you know to be seen like most of the time because his mother taught him to always be as invisible as possible and not to like you know stand out in the crowd. That's what they were taught going through the war, right? You don't want to stand out and you know, and have people notice you. So, like, there's this line towards the end where he says, "Because the sunset, like survival, exists only on the verge of its own disappearing.、Mm, yeah. To be gorgeous, you must first be seen, but to be seen allows you to be hunted." What I really wanted to say was that a monster is not such a terrible thing to be. From the Latin root "monstrum," a divine messenger of catastrophe, then adapted by the Old French to mean an animal of myriad origins: centaur, griffin, satyr. To be a monster is to be a hybrid signal, a lighthouse, both shelter and warning at once. I read that parents suffering from PTSD. Are more likely to hit their children. Perhaps there is a monstrous origin to it, after all. Perhaps to lay hands on your child is to prepare him for war. To say possessing a heartbeat is never as simple as the heart's task of saying yes, yes, yes to the body. I don't know. You once told me that the human eye is God's loneliest creation. How so much of the world passes through the pupil, and still it holds nothing. The eye, alone in its socket, doesn't even know there's another one, just like it. An inch away, just as hungry, as empty. He writes his stories like vignettes, so it's not a linear narrative.、Mm-hmm. So half the time you are going into his past, half、mm-hmm. the time you're going into,、um, even sometimes he just tells you about monarch butterflies、yeah. or how buffaloes kind of kill themselves by falling off cliffs. There's a lot of animal imagery、mm-hmm. in his stuff, and I believe that his poetry also has a lot of animal imagery because it's got monkeys in it. It's got、oh. veal. Please don't remind me about monkeys, honey. Oh yeah, <laughs> there's this image in the book about monkeys that I cannot let go of. <laughs> but but that is, but that I remember when I was reading that that was the story that somebody told me happened to them when they went to China,、right. that they had to eat like monkey. 
Let's like, not let's not put that out there. <laughs> let's not put that out there. We have to tell people what they're gonna read, Diana. <laughs> no, I, one thing that affected me a lot when we were reading this book is it's very visceral. It's very earthy in that sense. It's it's not deliberately beautiful. Because he... Oh, he, he, doesn't, dis- he doesn't look away yeah, from the yeah, hard stuff. That's right. He's honest. He gives you the gritty realities. But he can still find the beauty in it. That amazes me, you know. He can still find, like, in a scar. He'll, he'll see, like, you know, something poetic in blood and, and scars. And um, I found the writing very fluid. But I also know that he probably sat down and really crafted it. Like, just like a poet, he finds the best possible words to describe things because it is just wonderful to hear. You know, this is a book that you can actually read out loud. I mean, I read it out loud to my dogs, again, my, my usual audience, and they were not impressed in general, but I love the way his alliteration, you know, the cadence of his actual prose really does play on you as well. And that makes the hard stuff palatable. Yeah. When you're reading the hard stuff because it's punctuated with such beautiful prose, you you seem to be okay yeah, when I you're mean, reading it. You know, reading the book, I found it quite hard at times because there was so much pain in it. But um, I have to say that, you know, he, you, you process that pain, right? You use it to make yourself stronger and better. And, and and I think by the end of the book, you really get that. He's, oh. There's hope in it. There's some um, beauty. There's, there's, oh, there's so much beautiful language. And, and it, it really makes you so amazed at how someone can come from, you know, like mm. a, such that can a background. Really, can really articulate his and life. And he can. Yes, he can. Through this. Um, speaking of visceral as well, I mean... Just fair warning to all of you with sensitive kind of like stomachs. There are a lot of violence in this book, but there's also a lot of very explicit um, sex. Like the gay sex part, I thought, I really have not read that many that really actually gets into the real grittiness. That was very brutally honest, was it not? (laughs) But yet it was so beautiful and it makes so much sense. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I have obviously, you know, I'm not (laughs) a gay man, but... I remembered he was saying in one of his interviews, he says that if you are gay, nobody ever teaches you. Nobody ever sits you down and explains to you the birds and the bees. You right. actually have to discover by accident, discover by pain, mm-hmm. how to derive pleasure from mm-hmm. sex. And I thought, wow, he really got that down. Right. My desire was to make it relentless and to have it um, return. Often sex gay or otherwise is seen as a plot point you, you you build these characters towards it and then there's this almost a tension that's relieved and then you move on maybe you get married or, or what have you or you graduate you know school um, but I wanted it felt more faithful to me to return to it that it's not a threshold because for queer bodies you know we never got the, the, the conversation about the birds and the bees we have to fail into pleasure and that failure builds upon itself towards self-knowledge that every time you fail you learn something about yourself to find and harvest pleasure from one another and so i wanted that internal crisis and and that that drama to be opened and and for the desire 
to be felt as weather in the book. And so sex returns again and again, not as something that they get over with, but something that they use to discover and learn about each other. Talking about being gay, you know, they, they, there's a very interesting story. Um, actually, um, Ocean said he wrote the book literally sitting in a closet. Oh yeah, because he had really noisy housemates. <laughs> yes, and so he like the only place that he could find, you know, to really gather his thoughts was literally sitting in the closet. And he says the irony doesn't escape him. I was like, wow, <laughs> so, <laughs> that was yeah. an interesting story. I can tell you the other thing why I can actually relate on some parts of the book. Um, I think in the past, we have done a lot of books or we've talked about a lot of books that have dealt with immigrants in America. So the Korean experience, the Chinese experience, the Indian experience. But the Vietnamese experience, because it's Southeast Asian, is so close to our culture mm -hmm. because a lot of their culture is based on living you know, near rice paddy fields, mm -hmm. living with humidity. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the scenes where he pulls out his grandmother's grey hairs. Mm -hmm. I used to do that for my aunt. Yeah, and uh, they used to uh, call that rambut gatal, you know, so it says yeah. one wiry hair in the so head. He, and I used to say that. I they use the same thing. They, he says the same thing in the book. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and and even when he has to massage his mom, I mean, yeah. the fact that his mom has such horrible hands because mm -hmm. she's a manicurist, right? Yeah. So my aunt was a tailor and she worked with her hands a lot. Mm -hmm. And she, I think she was blind towards the end of her life because she was doing all these tiny, tiny stitching. Right. She used to babysit because my parents used to travel quite a lot when I was young and she would babysit me and, I, and she lived in this really musty wooden house. And she would tell me to massage her back. And the coin. We used the coin. We did not use Vicks Vapora. We used this green the... minya angin. I don't know whether you remember it. It's in this kind of like um, blue box with a oh. picture of a man in a turban in front. And, that... it, and he has yeah, like old, old BM, like with CH, Chobala. <laughs> Chobala Obat. OBAT. Right. You must this, have stared at that a long and, time. And it smelled, yeah. And it smelled kind of terrible, but yet kind of comforting if I smell it now because yeah. it reminds me of my childhood uh -huh. sitting there trying to work out the knots in her shoulders because she used to bend over her old singer sewing machine. This is why I felt that this book also told a little bit of the Southeast Asian story mm. Mm. because um, these is the kind of like the childhood things that mm. I went through as well. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, there was a point when I thought, oh, you know, another immigrant story in America, really, you know, because there's so many of them. I mean, I'm not trying to belittle them, or, uh, but it just feels that sometimes um, it, I'm a bit removed from it because right. it's not mm -hmm. really a narrative that I've lived through. Right. But yet this one, there were parts of it, mm -hmm. even him being named Little Dog. I mean, the Chinese community That's has that same practice, completely, right? Completely, yes. Where yes. you name your child something horrible mm -hmm. so that the spirits will not steal them, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we know or, all this. Or as um, Little Dog says, to love something then is to name it after something so worthless it might be left untouched and alive. A name thin as air can also be a shield, a little dog shield. Hmm. Again, animal imagery. Yeah. He's also called Little Dog, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, I guess the other part that was also huge in this book is the drug issue as well. Right. The, the whole opioid mm -hmm. issue in Hartford. Mm -hmm. I mean, this place was based in Hartford and it's really, really a dump, right? right? And you always think Connecticut of people like, you know, wearing little sweaters and going for, <laughs> uh, you know, wonderful clam chowder or something. I don't know. But in this one, you really see that they had this really bad opioid epidemic, you right. know, where mm -hmm. you were kind of like um, addicted to pain patches. Mm. And I think there was a huge amount of people, even in Ocean's own life, that mm -hmm. died from 
this drug epidemic that happened in this sort of like small towns when there's real desperation, mm. you know, where factories close down. It's the American dream that never really kind of got there. I know mm-hmm. that he wanted to tell a story that encompasses this, that a, that a real story can be with just normal working class yeah. people, yeah. you know, not, mm. not, not set in New York or mm. Chicago or LA, yeah. One of the things I liked best about what he said about the book is that um, it was his response to toxic masculinity. In so much of the book, um, the women being ill-treated by men and, and their power taken away from them and abandoned by men. And they have to stand up, you know, and they have to, to overcome their own pain in order to, to move on. He says that he, he wanted this book to honor the strength of his of his mother and his grandmother, right? All these women and the kind of troubles they had, the struggles they had to, you know, just to live a life, right? And and also the, the use of language, right? Mm. Because the toxic masculinity comes because mm-hmm. you tell, you have to kill it. Killing yeah. it, you're killing it or destroy that meeting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a, a language that you use when you're telling a boy that he has to um, triumph. Yeah. It's all the language of destruction. Yeah, yeah. And that leads to it because mm-hmm. you've got to, you know, I mean, and I, I think, oh, wow, that's actually a really good observation yeah, that the is. kind of language that we use um, in order to to come on top. Yeah, like, I mean, it's part of culture that we've internalized, right? We, we don't think about these things. It's just natural the way that things are. No object is in a constant relationship with pleasure, wrote Bartz. For the writer, however, it is the mother tongue. But what if the mother tongue is not stunted? What if that tongue is not only the symbol of a void, but is itself a void? What if the tongue is cut out? Can one take pleasure in loss without losing oneself entirely? The Vietnamese I own is the one you gave me. The one whose diction and syntax reach only the second grade level. As a girl, you watched from a banana grove. Your schoolhouse collapse after an American napalm raid. At five, you never stepped into a classroom again. Our mother tongue, then, is no mother at all, but an orphan. Our Vietnamese, a time capsule, a mark of where your education ended. Ma, to speak in our mother tongue is to speak only partially in Vietnamese, but entirely in war. I underline this book like a crazy person. I have so many favourite quotes in this book. and I, I have I to don't... stop, really, because otherwise it'd be just like the whole whole thing is underlined with yeah, some passages between them. I can't find anything anymore. But okay, how about um, you let our listeners um, have one of your favourite quotes and I'll try and find one from my um, underlying craziness. <laughs> Maybe this one. I didn't know that would be last time I'd see him. His next scar lit blue by the diner's neon marquee. To see that little comma again, to put my mouth there, let my shadow widen the scar until at last, there was no scar to be seen at all, just a vast and equal dark sealed by my lips. A comma superimposed by a period the mouth so naturally makes. Isn't that the saddest thing in the world, Ma? A comma forced to be a period? Yeah, I love that. I love that. 
I'm going to read something that is between him, his mother, and his grandmother. It's true that in Vietnamese, we rarely say, I love you. And when we do, it's almost always in English. Care and love for us are pronounced clearest through service. Plucking white hairs, pressing yourself on your son to absorb a plane's turbulence, and therefore his fear. Or now, Eslan called to me, little dog, get over here and help me help your mother. And we knelt on each side of you, rolling out the hardened cords in your upper arms and down to your wrists and your fingers. Three people on the floor, connected to each other by touch, made something like the word family. Holy shit! Yeah. Ocean. I think. I think. I think one of Ocean. the best things is just take my heart out and yeah. squeeze it. One thing that you know that really, I just really, really wanted to know is where's the line between the truth and the fiction in this book? I know. I know. Right? Because there's so much of it that lines up with Ocean Vong's own life. and You know, when I first started reading it, I actually thought it was sort of like a semi-memoir. And then it just had to be, right? As I went further and further into it, I realized, oh no, actually some parts of it are fiction. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what, um, when we had that interview with Tesh Oh, I think this is what he's saying, that how a lot of books are written Mm self-referentially. But yet fictionalized. Right. It's actually putting yourself into the story, but yet you're not mm-hmm. actually in the story. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting, like how writing has shifted in yeah. this way. You, when you read a, a memoir, you're supposed to swallow wholesale that you know that's exactly how things happened, right? And sometimes it, it feels to me like it, it's not possible that you had remembered all those details twenty years ago when you were like you know five years old, and and they'll be talking about you know what the weather was like, you know, where you were sitting in the kitchen and what you were wearing and everything. And I'm like, there is no way you you have known all those details, right? But because he's situating this as fiction, not a memoir. So he's given himself a license to stretch the truth any way he wants it, you know, poetic license, basically. So to to make it a tale that, you know, makes sense to him, for for him to rewrite his own narrative the way that he wants it. Yeah. And and, you know, because there are parts of the book that just seem so elegant, like Mm -hmm. he will be on the floor and then there'll be one sock there that would have the words that need to be in that sentence. And I'm like, okay, okay, this must be fiction because that's just too perfect. (laughs) Yeah. So there's all these little elements here when you're reading through the book as Mm -hmm. you're getting into the story of Little Dog Mm -hmm. and you're wondering whether, oh, is this about Vong? That you realize that, oh no, actually, there are such beautiful bits here that is definitely fiction. Yeah. And yet... Yeah, but I mean, like feels... the details aside, because because this is actually because it's a epistolary novel, so you know they generally tend to be guided less by plot and more by memory. So basically, with, with these kind of novels, uh, recollections, you know, like strung together, yeah, they 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 get pieced together later on, right? It's like building a quilt of your memories. And um, there's a quote where he says that you know he wanted to start. Right, he write, started writing the, the novel as truth, and he wanted to end with art. Oh yeah, and I, I I love that because it just it just goes to show that you know you can rewrite your own story. You and can he's indeed rewritten it in this amazingly moving way. Well, there's a lot of people that are saying that a Vietnamese immigrant basically wrote the great American novel. Oh yeah, a lot of people are even saying stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and they're saying like things like you know it it took a gay immigrant to write this and and that's just so it just shows the future of America right exactly mm-hmm. exactly well, I, I learned a lot putting together a collection of poems and one thing you learn 
as a poet writing a collection of poems that every poem is a, a chance to recalibrate language for yourself. Whether you're writing a persona poem, every poem is a mask, so you you get to start over in your linguistic endeavors. And I didn't want to have much cohesion. I wanted every scene. To have oscillations, so you have New England vernacular, you have essayistic, journalistic writing、uh, on butterflies and opioid facts,、um, and I wanted it all. I didn't want to to blend them or have cohesion、um, or evenness. I wanted all of them to be a sort of chorus, sitting together. Why? Why would somebody want to pick up on Earth? We are briefly gorgeous by Ocean Vuong. Oh, because it's just so beautiful.、Um, it's beautiful in the way that he phrases things. It's just you can tell straight away this guy knows what to do with language. He knows how to write sentences that really, really touch you. If what we've said so far doesn't convince you, you just have to go and give it a try for yourself.、Mm. I mean, I feel there's a lot of emotional truth in his story,、oh, definitely. And that's always the hardest thing I feel a writer to actually, even if it's fiction. Come from a place of emotional joy,、yeah. and damn, this guy can write. <laughs> I mean, there are times when I actually say out loud, "Damn, this guy can write." When I'm actually <laughs> reading this book, and and he really doesn't flinch away from the hard stuff. Right. So as a reader, you owe it to yourself to also read the hard stuff. Not everything is sunshine and butterflies,、yeah. even though there are butterflies in this yeah. book. <laughs> yeah.、Um, But also let yourself experience what. Language in the hands of a master is actually really like. Yeah, he's so young. He's only thirty years old. Yeah, can you imagine? imagine that, right? There's still good, more good stuff to come from him. Yeah. And I like the fact that he says here that he broke it down into those little snapshots of life because to be broken is not to be wrong. That's、mm. what he says.、Mm. Uh, so he said it's a careful orchestration of an explosion of what, emotion. What would be? What、yeah. would it be like to to speak to this guy on a daily basis? And I. Everything he says is just like you know, it's just perfectly framed and perfectly designed to <laughs> to be but, such a pithy comment. But see, that's that's the best thing about writing a novel or writing a book. You、mm-hmm. can put the best words on right. paper. Right. Yeah. Right.、Mm-hmm. I've got a few、um, book suggestions. If anybody would like to, did you have any any suggestions that you could come up with?、Um, yeah. Well, I suppose you should read his book. Night Sky with Exit Wounds, his poetry, because I believe Night Sky with Exit Wounds is about his absent father,、mm. while On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous is about the women who raised、mm-hmm. him.、Um, and maybe pick up something from Yusuf Komunyaka.、Uh, he's an African American poet that he really admires. He's also written poetry. Uh, of his experiences in the Vietnam War, and I guess what you were talking about the PTSD that people get after something so. You know, harrowing like that.、Um, so、yeah. maybe those two to check out.、Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm sure you have more, Diana. A book that I really enjoyed reading was *The Sympathizer* by Viet Thanh Nguyen. Yeah, I thought of that too. Yeah, it's um, there was something about this book. I, it really, really um spoke to me. I guess um, it was it's a gripping spy novel, an exploration of extreme politics, and and also at the same time a moving love story. Indeed,、mm-hmm. and and I like the fact that in both their books, there's also that visceral quality of food as well, because <laughs> um, in *The Sympathizer*, sometimes you get a little hungry, and to me, one of the most ir- Interesting images from this book was the smell of acetate in the nail salon, intermingled with the scent of fur, and the spices and herbs、mm-hmm. uh, being brewed 
in yeah, the back. I remember that one. Mm-hmm. Of, of the shop. Yeah. And and this is obviously the sense of his childhood as well because, yeah. you know, his mother also worked in a nail salon. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I, mm. I, I mean, like, it's these little things that he puts in, you know, that the, the sense of smell and taste and everything, they're just power of a poet man I mean, exactly. like, you know, I mean the purple flowers that his grandmother was obsessed mm-hmm. with and mm-hmm. told him to climb a fence to take yeah. it from the side of the road yeah yeah, just little bits like that and and I think if his intention is to make mundane everyday things and elevate them into literature I think he's got it sorted in this book oh wow he's already had that with his, with his book of poems exactly yeah um yeah, but, but I mean, The Sympathizer, um, also based um, in the Vietnam War and the Vietnamese experience and the immigrant experience. So uh, very much like, like that. Mm, mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And uh, anything else, Diana? Um, there's also this um, book called Trauma is Really Strange. It's by Steve Haynes and Sophie Standing. It's a graphic novel, actually. Um, uh, oh. It's a comic book about trauma. So it's an accessible comic book. Uh, uh, it's actually got a lot of scientific facts about trauma and how it affects the body and the brain. It's a, a little bit of a dark humor kind of kind of kind of book, but yeah, I mean, like it, it's also helpful because it contains techniques to help reduce tension and stress. And it's like a picture book for adults. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. And don't forget, um, maybe if you're looking for more books on the immigrant experience, um, don't forget Frank McCourt's um, Tis. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is you know one one of the one of the most popular memoirs of all time, I suppose. Cool. Who will be lost in the story we tell ourselves? Who will be lost in ourselves? A story, after all, is a kind of swallowing. To open a mouth in speech is to leave only the bones which remain untold. It is a beautiful country. Because you're still breathing. So, Diana, you know what time of the month it is again, don't you? It's breakout TBR time. Yay! Because it's the 1st of August. Mm. It's not often that we get to do break your TBR on the actual 1st of the month. It's auspicious date, so plenty and plenty of good choices to go, f- go for this month. Yeah. Do you want to kick it off, Diana? Okay. Um, one book that I'm pretty excited for is, tell me if I'm saying this right, Olga Tokarczuk's book, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. I'm Which, sorry, I don't know what, what accent happened to me just now. She's Polish, right? Um, she I've is. actually read that book. Um, she was actually the Man Booker International Prize winner for 2018 for her book, um, Flights. So this is a new translation of um, of another one of her books. And um, she's actually very well known in her native Poland and, of course, across Europe. Um, in Do the you past. know I actually bought that book because I actually like the title. Flights? Or Drive no. Your Plow? Okay, okay. Drive because Your Plow Over the Bones uh, of the Dead. It's based on a poem. It is um, from a poem. Well, um, according to The Guardian, it's, in effect, a murder mystery, a primer on the politics of vegetarianism. Yes, a dark feminist comedy and an existentialist fable and also a pay-in to um, William Blake. It's from William Blake. Yes. Because the main protagonist is this old lady who teaches um, William Blake in school, I believe. Right. And she actually looks after people's summer homes. Okay. So d- during winter. So, you know, because they live in this in a forested area. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, it starts off with her neighbor. Her neighbor died. And as you go along in this slightly surreal story, it's almost as though 
the animals are taking revenge on the hunters that kill them. Oh, okay. Because um, when they I find see. another body and he's <laughs> thrown in the well, what all they can find are tiny hoof prints of deers around. Oh. So that is her theory. Okay. Interesting. That, yeah. Um, I wouldn't call this a particularly easy book to read and mm-hmm. I don't know whether things are lost in translation, but it is certainly surreal and uh, it has quite an interesting ending. <laughs> okay. So yeah, uh, I finished this book and it's, um, I don't know, if you like something a little bit surreal and something with unexpected protagonists and um, and just, I guess, to go into the psyche of somebody who lives in the deep woods of Poland, mm-hmm. this could be the book for you. Sounds mm. very interesting. Speaking of which, um, not that there's any relationship at all to this book, um, another book to look forward to is The Hole by Hia Young Pyun. I'm probably pronouncing that wrongly. But the blurb basically says, it's Shirley Jackson meets Hong Kong. And it's a Korean slow-burning horror story. Mm. So after a car accident that kills his wife and leaves him almost completely, in, in you know, I guess, paralyzed... <laughs> <laughs> Ogie ends up in the care of his mother-in-law It's a straight up first uh, body horror As we see the world through Ogie's eyes But slowly it changes into something else entirely If you look for what's lying just below the surface Okay. Uh, people who have read it Has said that it's one of their favourites this year okay. So I guess if you want something a little surreal that Okay, speaking of surreal Although less horror, I guess Um Less horror, more historical fiction. Taya Obrecht, who eight years ago, her, her debut, The Tiger's Wife, was um, very well received. Um, she's released a new novel called um, Inland. It reimagines and subverts the myths of the American West. So it's set in the, in the American Wild West in 1893. And it tells the story of uh, a woman who is a frontiers woman. And she's bound to a house she can't leave. And also, there's a haunted former outlaw searching for a home he can't find. So it's a story of how these two meet and what happens from there. It's it's meant to be surreal. It's meant to have a little bit of magical realism in it as well. Really? Magical realism set in the wild, wild west? Yeah, interesting, right? <laughs> oh, okay. Yep. Okay, this is a newly translated book um, from a Scandinavian author. It's called Leona the Die is Cast. Her name is Jenny Rog. Rognaby. Oh my god. We are, up. <laughs> the names today. We are mangling everything here. Everything's uh really please uh look at the post for this podcast where we will actually give you the right spelling and you know where to find these books. So this is a hard-boiled Scandinavian thriller with a flawed female protagonist and a 7-year-old who gets away with a multi-million dollar bank robbery. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> interesting. But the background of writer herself is as equally interesting because she was born in Ethiopia but adopted by a Swedish family and she was an investigator or probably still is an investigator in the Stockholm City Police Department and a former Swedish pop singer who once opened for Michael Jackson in Estonia. Wow, interesting. I think her life story itself could mm-hmm. be a pretty interesting book. Oh, yeah, right? that definitely sounds like it. Mm. Speaking of life stories... um, do uh, you remember who Candace Bushnell is, honey? Oh, yeah. Okay. Of so Candace Bushnell, who is, of course, famous for Sex in the City. And she's actually releasing her memoirs. This is a memoir called Is There Still Sex in the City? And in, in it, she's, she's talking about um, what it's like to, to look for romance when you're middle-aged. 
Oh, so a little bit like you know, I, I guess it's different from Sex in the City because that's for younger younger oh, women. It's and like this- Sarah J- Jessica Parker after doing Sex in the City <laughs> went to do a show <laughs> called Divorce. Yeah, yeah, I know. So it's it's you know her memoirs, her um, her experience of being you know older and still looking for love. So it's it's got love, sex, divorce, and a lot of her brilliantly funny and honest first person account. This, you know that that's what she's famous for. Mm, Candice Bushnell is a bit of a mixed bag for me because um, I've read the book Sex and the City, and it was obviously written like a series of articles and interviews. Mm-hmm. I think if you watch the first episode of Sex and the City, they tried to do it like that, where right. they actually have interviews. It's like an interview kind of like concept with. Carrie Bradshaw's character going around interviewing people like right. a writer or sex columnist that she is, mm-hmm. right? And then later on, they got rid of that, thank God, and just went into, you know, your typical television narrative. Right. For for people who are probably a bit confused by that, the original books of Sex and the City is written that way mm-hmm. as a series of interviews of people dating in New York. Mm-hmm. It was, of course, in those days, people didn't speak um, very openly about women's sexuality and, and the lives that they have, which is why, I guess, it really was in the cultural zeitgeist, right? But her books after that was was just okay for me. It wasn't very fantastic. Okay. Maybe well, her memoir might be interesting yeah. because she's going back into her old mm-hmm. style of writing because fiction might not be the thing for her. If you know what I mean? Maybe. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Oh, and speaking of women, for non-fiction, I've got one called The Vagina Bible. The Vulva and the Vagina Separating the Myth from the Medicine by Jennifer Gunter. So this is almost like a user's manual for people with vajayjays. It has questions like, does eating sugar cause yeast infection? Does pubic hair have a function? Will your vagina shrivel up if you go without sex? What's the truth about the HPV vaccine? So there's a lot of important questions and there's a lot of contradictory misinformation out there for women's health. And I think this is quite true, actually. Um, So it's quite easy to be overwhelmed. Uh, because you get advice from all kinds of people. So OBGYN Jen Gunther is an expert on women's health, and she is the internet's most popular to go to doctor to come to the rescue of the book that debunks the myths and educates and empowers women about their vaginas. That's so good. it's got things here like cosmetic vaginal surgery, even things like tongs versus lace, the best underwear for vaginal health, how to select a tampon. The full glory of the clitoris and the myth of the G spot. <laughs> so it says here whether you are twenty six year old worried that her labia are uncool or a sixty six year old dealing with painful sex, this comprehensive guide is sure to become a lifelong trusted resource. Great. That was really long. Sorry, Diana. <laughs> Diana's looking at me like shut up, honey. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> It's important. I think this book could be really important because there's actually a lot of questions that I think women often ask, but they don't really talk about mm-hmm. because it's so private, maybe. No That's matter. True. We talk, and you, we talk you a definitely... lot about feelings, but maybe the physical aspect of things sometimes yeah. are a bit taboo. I think, I think, you know, a lot of these, I mean, like, these are commonly found topics in women's magazines, but you, you can't trust the information you can get in women's magazines, right? Exactly. So. Exactly. To have somebody who actually knows what they're talking about telling you about these things. Hmm. Okay. okay. Another book that I think you would be very excited for, honey, oh, no. is okay. The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa. Oh, okay. Did you know that she has, there's a new book coming out by I Yoko did not Ogawa? Know. Thank you very much for telling me. <laughs> so, um, in this book, the story goes that animals and flowers are disappearing, and then bells, ribbons, and photographs um, at the hands of the memory police. You know, th- these are all 
these are all objects that are, that are going missing. So in the memory police, is it's about truth, state surveillance, and individual autonomy. So it has echoes of George Orwell's 1984. Interesting. Also Fahrenheit 451. And also, there's also apparently, you know, some echoes of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. Really? So definitely something up your alley, honey. Lots of people named Aurelianus or... I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Or Arcadia. I can't remember. Arcundi? I can't remember what their names were. But there was a lot of people named the same. They were all in the same family. Yeah. um, Yokoagawa, I mean, like, it could be dark or it could be light. You know, like, there's a certain variation in the books. You know, Um, this feels a little bit like, this is more like something I would pick up because, you know, I'm not really a fan of very creepy kind of writing. So... This one sounds maybe like bit... revenge. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this sounds a little bit more like something I would like to read. Mm. Okay. I've got something here called The Greatest Urdu Stories Ever Written mm. by Muhammad Umar Memon. Uh, the reason I picked this up because I recently picked up the best contemporary Japanese short writing and I'm really enjoying it because okay. it's something that you can read like one story a day, mm-hmm. you know. So this is a collection of 25 translated curated Urdu stories mm-hmm. and it covers some far-reaching ground from the origins of Urdu short fiction to the radically political writings during Indian independence and the partition and also some great modern experimental fiction. So it might be kind of interesting because I mm-hmm. don't believe I read much oh, Urdu fiction. Me neither. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's classics here as well as potentially hidden gems. Right. Mm. Interesting. And for those who enjoy reading graphic novels and also enjoy a bit of YA, uh, Rainbow Rowell oh, yeah. has a new book out. Rainbow Rowell has teamed up with Faith Erin Hicks to release Pumpkin Heads, which is a graphic novel, a young adult romantic comedy. And it's about two teens discovering what it means to leave behind a place and a person without regrets. Huh. I mean, it's, I think it's about two people who work every Halloween or something at a pumpkin store, yeah. right? Yeah, it's got something to do with pumpkins. A fall novel. Like, like It's got to do with a, a lot of... um. Uh, Even the cover itself. It's probably somebody that you've been crushing on for many, many years, Mm. but never had the courage. And then suddenly you're realizing that everybody's going to college and you might have to tell him or her that you've secretly loved her for many years. Oh my God, that sounds like something every kid's going to pick up. I know, and it's a graphic (laughs) novel. Yeah. Exactly. The last one I'm going to uh, recommend for August is Nordic Tales. You might actually enjoy this. It's folk tales from Norway, Sweden, Finland, Iceland, and Denmark. Mm. There are stories here that covers things like a young woman that journeys to the end of the world, uh, about a boy that proves he knows no fear. It's a collection of 16 traditional tales that brings you into the enchanting world of Nordic folklore. So a lot of the stories were translated and transcribed by folklorists in the 19th century and it's presented here unabridged. So the stories are by turns magical, hilarious, cozy and chilling. So it also offers a view into Nordic culture and it's supposed to be a comforting wintertime read. I'm not sure about the chilling and the comforting hmm. thing. But there are also illustrations. So it's got Ula Tynels. I'm not pronouncing it right either. <laughs> Glowing contemporary illustrations will accompany each tale. So there's princesses, dragons, and also the northern light. Wow, I don't know how we managed to do it, honey, but I found books that you enjoyed, and you found books that I would enjoy. So <laughs> spending too much time together, Diana. I'm not so sure you enjoyed the vagina Bible, though. <laughs> 
you know, user's manual, always useful. <laughs> okay, so, yes. So, on that note, I think we come to the end of our episode this week. We hope you enjoyed this, uh, you know, vaginas, vulvas and vong. <laughs> really, honey, was it necessary? <laughs> Uh, as usual, you've been listening to Two Book Nets Talking with me, Honey. And I'm Diana. Yeah, thanks for listening. You can find us on Instagram at TBNT Books, Facebook under Two Book Nets Talking, or you can just say hello to us and email us at booknetstalking at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us again next week. Two Book Nets Talking is a production of Renegade Radio. This episode was produced by Jeff K and edited by Kelvin Tay and Kate.